As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. I think that's probably some of the best advice I could say is just really getting to know the people that you do have and consistently talking with them. And I think that'll yield a much better relationship. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Nick Love. Nick is joining us from Dallas, Texas. He is the acquisitions and marketing manager at Hazel Equity, a firm that purchases class A and B value add multifamily properties in Texas. Nick also educates other multifamily operators on marketing and social media strategies. Nick, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Hey, Ash, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure, Nick. Hey, Nick, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm 24 years old right now, turning 25 this year, and I have a big background inside of real estate and finance. I got a finance degree here in uh, Dallas, Texas, up in Denton, actually, where I also studied real estate and marketing. So a lot of information, a lot of things going on. And while I was in school, I was also going out to different meetups and different groups, the real estate club, all these things, because real estate was a large interest of mine. And I didn't realize it was a passion until I really got into it, started talking with people and put my thumb inside of a zag, which was the marketing side and really dived deep inside of marketing specifically for multifamily real estate, where I realized that that's where I like to be in the marketing side and also just on the investment and buy side. So I Kept trying to really pursue down that route and purchase deals and fine-tune my marketing skills and try to be where I am now. So now it's just looking forward and trying to pursue more multifamily deals and grow my brand. And what does your portfolio look like today? So right now, we actually just closed on the third property, literally on uh, December 31st, right there, a 262-unit, the largest one that we ever did. So now... I got, I think it's 491 units now, not including the house. Congratulations. What was your first real estate deal? The first one was a smaller multifamily deal. It was a 56 unit inside of Oklahoma City. So a little bit outside of 
what I look at now, which is inside of the Texas MSAs. But at the time, it was a great cash flowing deal that also had a commercial unit attached to it that a colleague of mine that was working with ended up bringing the deal. And it was a great one that I ended up help raising money and manage that. So that was the first one about, uh, I think now it's about two and a half years ago, close to three. All right. So you knew you wanted to go into marketing. You knew you wanted to go into real estate and you bypassed everything and got a 56 unit as your first acquisition. How'd you find that deal? How'd you finance? Give me the whole story. Well, the 56 unit ended up coming out because a colleague of mine brought that over to me. And I was underwriting that deal while I was also working for a multifamily appraisal company at the same time that I was in school and I was underwriting and looking at deals left and right. So whenever that one came across and I loved the underwriting and just the projections that were going out for that deal and that submarket, it piqued my interest and I wanted to move forward with a partner on that deal and then just kept trying to move up and talk and network with people to try to do more and more deals. and. Now I think more of my focus is inside of the Texas MSAs and properties that are more in the B and A class. Nick, what was your role and what was the role of your partner on that deal? I was more on the marketing side. So trying to create out those marketing documents, that was kind of a little bit of a advantage of mine. And then also helping raising capital for the deal. And then just management post acquisition was a smaller side with that too. So then my other partner is pretty much everything else. Is your partner an experienced multifamily syndicator? At the time, not as experienced, just like myself, but as things went on, yeah, everybody got more experience. So this but was he was new. more experienced than I was. Okay, yes. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I was hey, definitely new, but I knew a lot about the process. Where in Texas are you looking for deals now? As of right now, it's Dallas, Texas, and Fort Worth, Texas, and Houston. So that may branch out to maybe inside of San Antonio, but now it's Dallas and Houston. So Nick, what do you say to all those people that say those markets are too competitive? There's no good deals out there. I think it depends who it comes from. There's always going to be good deals. I think that now it's just about adapting or dying. Either got to be creative, whether that's inside of your offer or inside of the relationship. I think that whenever people are saying that the market is competitive, is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? If people are looking out there, there's obviously a reason. It makes things more difficult to purchase deals in a competitive market. Obviously, this is not my crazy experience opinion, but just what I see as as my own, that these markets like Dallas and Houston just have a ridiculous amount of growth, whether that's on the rent side, whether that's on population or just employers and things like that. And whenever we're talking about real estate and looking at five and 10 year outlooks, I would rather be looking at something competitive than non, I guess, even if that's in more tertiary markets of the metro. And do you use social media and what marketing tactics do you use to find deals? Yes, 100%. I use social media and I think that has a couple of different aspects for you to be able to utilize, whether that's on exposure or on advertising or on different things like that. But social media is going to be where so many things can be seen or be heard, or you're trying to show social proof to an investor or potential client or anything like that. And then what was your other question? What marketing tactics do you use to Hmm. find deals? Well, for me specifically, I don't use any type of off-market tactics, whether that's going inside mailers or trying to talk with more off-market brokers or anything like that. I think a lot of my 
marketing per se, if you would like to call it, is talking with broker relationships and using email and making sure that the organization is there for deal flow and underwriting and things like that. So 90% of my time is working with broker relationships for deals. I think there's plenty out there. Just some solid networking. Solid networking, you know, it's down to the basics, I guess. I do know some people that are doing cold calling and they're putting in direct mail and they're trying to look for those off-market opportunities that they can capture. But that's a very limited and very small amount of deals that you'll probably see, whether for me, on-market deals, I can look at 100 a month at least. And you may be lucky to get a few potentially just to look at that somebody that wants to sell. So it's really in a long game for some of these marketing tactics for deals specifically, which isn't a bad thing. You just have to understand that you won't just put one mailer out there and get a deal. It's a long-term thing. Nick, a lot of successful real estate investors that don't do anything on social media, what would be your game plan for them to ramp up their social media presence? Great question. I think that there's a lot of different people in different stages of their online presence or their social media presence. So it all comes down to the basics and understanding of why you use social media, why you have different things and how you want to use it. So for an easy example, a multifamily investor that is going to be trying to put out content on social media, whether that's on LinkedIn and Instagram and different places like that, the end goal obviously, is to capture the audience that you're trying to look for. So if there's somebody that's a coach, you know, they're looking to create content towards other multifamily operators. And if it's an operator, they're trying to either gain more exposure to try to gain more passive investors, then that's just kind of where you have to start and think about. So then your content should be answering questions that those people are asking. And it should be creative and personal to the brand that you want to put out there. I think a lot of things that people do wrong is that they're very robotic with their content. It's just like data or it's just market or it's just question. And I think that moving into the new year and and the next year's going on, what you're going to see more success of. And if you look at some of these larger brands that are out there on social media, you'll see that so much of their personality shines through on their social presence. And that kind of makes you more of a person and authentic and people that connect you right? That's part of the pillars that we talk about, the know, like, and trust. To know somebody, you have to understand who they are, what they value and things like that. But the end goal is obviously to gain exposure on social media and then traffic it somewhere on your website or to a lead magnet, your email list, et cetera, et cetera. So whenever you're posting out content, you need to make sure that you have a way to capture the traffic that you're getting So your website should obviously be optimized and continually optimized in a sense where you shouldn't just have one lead magnet. You should have blogs that you post out there that you'll have more options for people to download more documents or set up calls or do whatever you want to do. And then you can have email automations in place to help further that know, like, and trust factor and and make sure that you stay top of mind with your investment base or your target audience. So focus on your audience and your end goals. 100%. What are your thoughts on people that outsource their social media? I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it can be a bad thing if you outsource your social media right from the start, unless you're a huge firm that can pay a lot of money to have very professional social media. You may be better off doing it on your own with less content or less type of distribution in the beginning than paying somebody off. Because if we're talking about multifamily investing specifically, it is a very specific industry 
and coming from experience as well, the kind of content that you put out there, whenever you start hiring out companies to do this kind of thing, unless you're paying a lot of money, it will be very low level. It won't be specific. It won't get exposure and you'll just start wasting months of time and thousands of dollars just to not end up getting a goal. And you won't even understand where the good exposure is, where the good traffic comes from, if things are working well or they're not. So I think that whenever you want to hire out a marketing company, you should be in a certain state of acquisitions or income that comes in because you should be reinvesting into marketing. That's where you'll get a lot of ROI from, but you have to understand it first too. You got to be trying to put out content, maybe even have a solid presence first. Because what I tell a lot of people is that social media specifically, and even marketing in general, it's a long-term mindset with a short-term work ethic. So it's day in and day out posting content, and you'll get the end goal that you want if you stay consistent with it day in and day out. We'll get back to the show in a few minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll get some value in learning more about. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Mark your calendars for the best ever conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. You can get 15% off right now with the code BEC15 at besteverconference.com. That's the code BEC15 for 15% off at besteverconference.com. That makes a lot of sense because if you outsource it, they can't really get to know you, so they can't get to know, like, and trust you. So That's in right. that regard, should people be promoting their company or themselves? That's a great question. That is a really great question. And to that, I would say whenever I work with people, sometimes their personal brand and their company brand may be one thing, or it could be something that's separate and I think that that's something that you have to choose on your own, and I'll give you different reasons for that. So let's say you separate them. You have Nick personal brand, and then you have Nick company. My Nick personal brand would be me, maybe other passions outside of business and real estate. I can still post some things in there, but that's more personality things. That's my fitness. That's morning routines. That's things that I'm working on or, or trying to put out there. And then the more the company would be maybe even a little bit more professional, maybe talk more about real estate, but still some personality. So you think about it, if you have a separation, the personal brand would be like a 75% talking about me and 25% talking about the company. And then 
the company brand would be the opposite, be at 75% talking about the company in the real estate, investing in 25% on the personality. I think you can have just one meld, let's say. It's all about how you kind of want to put yourself out there because let's say I made Nick real estate company, then I would be limited. Let's say even if I had a large team, people would see it still as just Nick real estate company. They would look at me, they look at things that I do. And even if you want to scale that, if people have this kind of mindset to scale it larger and larger, I think you'll end up becoming limited if you end up trying to put your name out there that's cohesive with your brand. So that's kind of how I see it. That's great advice. What do you see most often that people do wrong on social media? I think that time in and time out, whenever people try to create content, I see a couple different problems. And one is that they'll look at larger brands and what they're doing and try to copy that maybe even down to a T and it ends up coming across inauthentic because it's something that either they've already seen before is boring or it doesn't work. And then also the new year comes around, they want to build their social media presence. And I'm like, okay, I want to post four times a week for the whole year to try to get towards my social media goals. And while that's not a bad thing, it can be a bad thing because you end up hurting yourself in the sense that you overwhelm what you can actually do, especially in the beginning. So my advice for something like that is instead of doing that way, I would look at it the opposite. I would underwhelm yourself. I'd be, maybe I'll just post once a week and I'll try to learn to enjoy it, learn to enjoy making content, putting it out there and trying to have the mindset of I'm making this to actually give people advice and give them value and just do it once a week because you'll end up trying to become addicted to it. And you can always do more by starting out less. I think that that's a great thing and and things I see wrong because you have to be consistent with this stuff. So if you overwhelm yourself, you'll end up just falling off and hurting yourself. And your strategy makes you come across a lot more authentic because it's truly thought out content. One of the things that I see a lot of, my whole feed is full of real estate people. It's just closed on this 5 million unit property in Dallas. Sure. And that's it, right? Like, hey, I did this. I did that. How do you fix mm-hmm. that? Because I'll give you my opinion, but I want to hear yours first. Okay. How do you fix that? So when someone's just bragging about what they did and not coming across humble, grateful, what do you think when you see posts like that? <laughs> I think there's different cases. If that's the only thing, that I see somebody post, maybe inside of equity placement, you'll normally see that somebody is just constantly posting out, hey, we placed equity here, we did this, or even on the institutional side, it becomes numb to the mind, for one. I don't see the kind of work that went into that anymore. It's just more just a post now, and I don't see that gratitude from them or the importance inside that. And to get rid of that, I would say that you should start posting more of the process. Okay, maybe you are putting out let's just say once a month, something that you closed. Well, there's a whole month before that, that you're putting so much work into that you could easily take a picture on the property tour, or you're taking a picture while you're doing underwriting, or you're out at a lunch with your partners, or you just have a thought on, hey, this is where my value add came from. And you just like make a video from that. There's a stupid process, a stupid amount of time and energy that goes into deal by deal. And then people think that just posting the close and you actually accomplished this one deal is supposed to satisfy the social content that you put out there. And it comes in out negative 
because it's looking at numbers. We're not just numbers now inside the industry. We want to see personality. We want to see brand because every single company in the entire world can post out a closed content. Yeah. Record um, sales year. Record sales. Yeah. 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 I agree with everything you said, but if you do have to tout your success, thank other people that were involved in it. Talk about some of the pain that went into it, but definitely be humble. And if there's any way you can add value, Hey, closed on this 300 unit property. My biggest lesson learned was have two lenders, make sure your lender is constantly talking to the title company, whatever it is. Right. So it takes the boasting out a little bit and people can construe it as awesome. And thanks for adding value. Right. And tell yeah. a story. You literally were just talking about that. People connect to stories for carousels or things. And to your point, okay, yeah, you close the deal. And this is what I learned. This is the biggest takeaway that I took from the biggest deal I've ever done. This is my biggest takeaway. Immediately, you want to hear what that is or what things are going like that. And it doesn't even have to be a video. We're seeing some people, or if you look up Brandon Turner, like his types of content now are literally just him writing out a lesson or things that he thinks about with his logo. And it's something that people connect to because that's his advice from him as father, as a person, as a businessman, because everybody has an opinion. And, and maybe part of it is some people don't want to put their authentic opinion out there because they're afraid of the rejection or that it won't look good. But to that, a lot of times with social media, you just have to get over the fear factor. And that's why it's so important to just consistently post because not only do you get over the fear of putting out an authentic version of yourself, but then you start to realize how authentic you actually can be with your brand. And it's almost empowering. I love what you said about tell a story. And I want to reiterate that for the best ever listeners. It's something that I learned much later than I should have. Little things like if I have a deal and I bring it to my lender, even though it's a slam dunk deal, I know they're going to fund it. Not a problem. Still have a narrative, have a story. When you talk to your investors and you want to raise capital, don't just give them the numbers, give them the entire story, pitch it, right? Give them the narrative. Always, always have that story. When you talk Absolutely. to your tenants, when you talk to a broker, don't just say, hey, so can you tell me about this deal? Say, hey, listen, I've been a commercial real estate investor for 10 plus years. These are the asset classes that I buy. I've actually got a property close by. Can you tell me about this listing that you have? That narrative is so important. And that's in all aspects of life. Like you were saying, that's whenever you're communicating. That's whenever you're creating content. That's when you put out an email. If you start to think things in terms of beginning, middle, and end, you capture people's attention more. And that is very important. And that's why in, in social media, you'll see a big title. And then there's the meat. And then there's a summary. And people kind of connect with that because either they get hooked to the beginning or they read good information, or at the end, you kind of summarize what you talked about and what they should take away if they didn't get it in the beginning. And even that in a conversation, let's say me and you just get on this meeting and I just start talking about marketing statistics or whatever it is, as opposed to me getting on and saying, hey, let me tell you about the biggest marketing mistake I've ever had and how I fixed it or something like that. Immediately, what a, you, what a great yeah. segue. What is yeah. the biggest marketing <laughs> mistake you ever made? I think one that I still even struggle with is the perfectionism. Oh my goodness. That's such a huge problem, especially with myself that I try to put myself up on this huge ladder of everything needs to be perfect before it goes out. And it's something that you have to get over where you will be so much better off even adapting 
by putting something out there and just constantly working on it. So for example, let's say you're putting out a newsletter every month for your investment base, but you think, well, maybe I'll put out in three months so that I can work on it and make it perfect. And that ends up hurting you because you could just build it maybe in, in a few weeks, put out that first month, send out that email and then get feedback. And then you put out a second one and then you get feedback and you work on it again. And by the third newsletter, it's 10 times better than what you could have made on your own. So I think that a huge problem is that perfectionism that we end up coming out to. I think that's a huge problem that I had still kind of have. I would imagine a lot of people have that because the whole world's going to see what you put out, right? And it's, right. And it's there for everybody. Nick, let's go back to your 262 unit property. How did you find that? It's an on-market deal, actually. Wait um, a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Explain that because there's no good deals out there. <laughs> well, I don't think there's not that many great deals. I think there's a lot of good deals out there by finding the value in that. So I think it was pretty typical in the sense you get the deal, you underwrite, you take a look at it. But what was different and a thing that I was really shown to and thought about was there's always going to be that other guy that's bidding against you whenever you talk with brokers or something like that, whether that's a sales tactic, whether that's true or not, who knows. And how do you combat this other competitive buyer that's going to be going against you? So the deal, let's say they were asking, I think it ended up coming out to like 21 million for the deal or 22 million. And there was this institutional buyer that was supposed to come out and tour the deal that was apparently going to bid them 23 and a half or something ridiculous over the purchase price that almost us as private equity investors have no power over because there's somebody that's going to come in. Maybe their returns are going to be much lower than what we require. And you just kind of have to learn to either be patient with the process in there or try to figure out how we can adapt our offer, how we can win, et cetera, et cetera. So in the sense of that, that made the deal different because it was almost a longer process on getting under contract and even before that, just getting our LOI accepted. So that was a big thing that I had to realize and, and not getting emotionally attached to the deal and, and those kinds of things. But other than that, it was pretty typical and it was a loan assumption deal. So that was a little bit different than what we were doing beforehand too. We'll get back to the show in a few minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll get some value in learning more about. How are you doing on your goals this year? Whether it's planning for your goals or whether it's executing on those goals, I imagine one of them has to do with financial freedom, taking control of your finances. And I can tell you that is a possibility within the next one to three years using a proven system created by my friend, Michael Blanc. He's got the program Deal Maker Mentoring. Here are some of his students who have been in the program and what they've accomplished. Melanie McDaniel, she closed her first 24-unit joint venture deal and is now pivoting to become full-time in the industry. Within five months of joining, Cheryl Groovy from Atlanta, she had a 34-unit deal under contract. And she partnered with two other deal maker mentoring students, and together they raised seven hundred thousand dollars. And Brian Briscoe, he said thanks to deal maker mentoring, he had the opportunity to accelerate his timeline and go after much bigger deals than he would have on his own. If you are ready to commit to achieving your dreams this year, and you've been thinking about getting into multifamily, well, text the word Joe to six six eight six six. Again, that's the word Joe. You know how to spell my name, right? J O E to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind and let's get you started with your own syndication business. 
Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate and follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals or you can follow up with your investors and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. How did you win the deal against a hedge fund coming out with a $23 million <laughs> offer? Right. I didn't know who the institutional was, but they were out of country, actually out of the US. And it was going to be their first deal that they would do in the US. And they had this lingering offer, I guess is kind of how it was. And just to sum it up, their offer just ended up fizzling out and they just didn't want the deal anymore. So we were second in line right there, ready to attack it. But we were literally on this second property tour out there maybe and talking with the broker about how they were going to get the deal anyway, because they were pretty serious, but ended up flaking out. So you can never really know. So what do you do in that situation? You either be patient or you move on, right? It's kind of thing that I thought about. So some things you just can't control. Yeah. Patient and persistent. What asset class is this? B, C? It's a B minus. Okay. What's your value add plan? Pretty typical. There was already about 2 million in CapEx that was done on the exterior side. So a lot of our play was going to be on the interior renovations, a lot in the management. They don't really run a lot of the property very well, just in general, whether that's on renewals or on just the actual happiness of the tenant base and things like that. So a lot of it was on implementing more value-add strategies on the other income side with the washer dryers and just typical things like that, and then implementing more renovations on the units and then just better management. And that's kind of the gist and just other little stuff like that. But that's kind of how it was. You assumed the loan on this. What was that loan amount? Yes. The loan amount, which is funny, I remember it was 15 million and 50,000. So it ended up coming out to 66%, something along those lines, but it had practically no interest left over, but it was assumption only. So that's the terms that we had to do. So you had to raise 6 million to close. And then did you also raise money for the CapEx? Yes. So I think the total raise was eight and a half, I think. And what's the return to investors projected at? A little bit over 8% average annual member distribution, and then 102% total. 
over five, five years. years. Yes. Okay. How did you find the investors for this deal? This was an effort with our group and then a couple other general partners that we brought in to help raise because it was the biggest deal that we've ever done. And we brought in a few partners and then we had a decent amount of people in our email list already that we were ready to market out to. But other than that, it was pretty typical structure. Whenever we have the deal out, try to gauge interest, get as many people beforehand as we can, go through multiple email and webinar sequences beforehand, and then just to have a destination date for the actual raise and just going from there. But I think we ended up raising everything within, I think it was about two and a half weeks. So it really wasn't too much of an issue. And when you bring another GP into a deal, what does that individual get for bringing capital with them? So I think it depends on the operator. I think that there's a good direct proportion between how much money people raise and and how much they'll end up receiving on the general partnership side. And then just helping, obviously, inside of the asset management post-acquisition, which is important, obviously, inside of legality and SEC terms. So with that, I think there's a minimum and a cap on what you're trying to do with a general partnership and just having that up front and forward whenever you're talking with people, just making that known. Do you have defined roles for what those individual GPs will have to do? It's a little bit open, I would say, but more so than others, I think people just play to their strengths. But yes, it is. And obviously we'll be taking most of the asset management and and most of the roles with partnerships coming into play as their strengths are needed. What's the bottleneck for you moving forward? What's your biggest challenge? For this deal or just in general? In general, for you to continue to grow. I think it's being able to learn and have the mindset of trying to grow past this typical multifamily operator model, because only speaking for myself and our team and and things where we want to grow, we want to be a lot bigger, I think, than most want to be at. So let's say, just for example, not saying that's where I want to go. If you want to have 10 billion in multifamily assets, that's a much different thought process as far as a 10-year outlook than just trying to do two or three deals a year, which you'll get plenty of money and, and plenty of deals going on. But I think that in that route, if you're trying to just do two to three deals a year, which is totally fine, you still kind of keep the operator and the deal raise and working on a typical structure. But whenever we're trying to create a real brand in a real company that wants to grow, maybe even up to the institutional style. How do you get up to that point? How do you constantly optimize your acquisition process? How do you do more deals constantly? Every year, we want to be exponential. And I think that that's going to be difficult just moving forward because it seems like so much the advice or so much information out there is not about an exponential factor, but just like a staggering going up very slowly and consistently almost. I'm going to challenge you for a second. Why not look at other asset classes? We all know multifamily is very competitive, a lot of institutional money. Why not look at mobile homes, storage, retail, office? It's a good question. And maybe at some point, maybe diversifying and more asset classes will yield more deal flow, which is very true. But I think in the beginning, I can't have that mindset because if I'm looking at so many different asset classes or so many different deals, I have no expertise in, in one area right now. Whereas if I just focus on one area of multifamily right now, let's say for the next couple of years and grow a foundation for the company, then I could diversify out. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility, but it definitely is right now because there should be no reason for me 
to diversifying assets when I barely have enough deals as it is. Got it. Nick, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Put the people first. Put your investment base first, your team first. I'm really big on creating an experience over just the investment type. So if we want to have better retention on our investors or on our team or on any type of exposure that we get, I think that treating people even better than people, you want to treat them like your leaders or people that you partner up with and giving them maybe even awards or contacting left and right and not looking at people as numbers. I see that a lot inside of this industry, not naming anybody, but just seeing somebody as another person on your email list. I think that's probably some of the best advice I could say is just really getting to know the people that you do have and consistently talking with them. And I think that'll yield a much better relationship. Yeah. Like and trust, like you mentioned earlier. Right. Nick, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. All right. Take a deep breath. Nick, what's the (laughs) best ever book you recently read? I recently read How to Legally Raise Capital. That was a great book that just came out about just raising capital and private securities and things. That's a great book to look into very short. What was your biggest takeaway from that? Biggest takeaway was trying to understand the kind of realm that people go down and the differences inside of crowdfunding and actually using the syndication model or how we think of a syndication as the multifamily space and syndication and raising money for a multifamily deal. But really, it's a syndicate in a sense where that it could be used in many different realms of business. I think that opened my eyes because I feel like I was tunnel vision inside of a syndication was just for real estate when it's really not. So that was probably one of the biggest ones. Nick, what's the best ever way you like to give back? To be honest with you, I want to give back more. I've been looking a lot more into the Habitat for Humanity. I think that they have great programs that we can give back inside of that. But normally we do a lot of picking up trash and picking up trash on the oceans and the beaches and highways and things like that. That's one of the best ways I like to physically see inside of giving back. But I think that I want to go more of the Habitat for Humanity. And Nick, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? You can email me at nick at hazel equity which is h-a-z-e-l-e-q-u-i-t-y.com or you can actually go to a new website i just made it's called therealmarketers.com which is just marketing for multifamily investors specifically and that's going to be a great platform that i'm going to be growing this year nick thank you so much for taking time out of your day and joining us today at the age of 24 you knew what you were going to get into with the marketing background the finance degree working in real estate while you're in college and recently closing on 262 units. Congratulations on all your success and thank you again. Hey, thank you, Ash. I really appreciate it. It was our pleasure. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us and have a best ever day.